science. I can't say it often enough. It's such a pleasure uh, to have your company this afternoon. It's just me, I'm afraid. Uh, Andrew is in his hammock this afternoon uh, drinking martinis, and so he can't be with us. But it's, So it's left to me to carry the burden of sharing uh, news in the science and science behind the news. We have a, a guest on the show uh, a little bit later on uh, talking all about uh, language and economics and economics and language. You'll see what I mean. Uh, fascinating stuff uh, when um, uh, at around about 25 past three. Um, in the meantime, let's have a look at some of the uh, stories that uh, are in the news. Uh, the first, well, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what I'm doing, uh, listener, right now. I've just figured out why that music played. There you are. I've brought it all to a halt now. It's not going to trouble you anymore. Um, New Zealand Wales. This is a kind of a sad and also rather inspiring uh, story because, um, as you will know, uh, more than uh, 200 uh, whales were stranded uh, on a uh, remote beach in New Zealand. And uh, on Saturday... Um, sorry, that story around. I think the much larger number than that, but 200 whales that were stranded rem uh, um, on a remote beach in New Zealand actually refloated themselves and returned to the sea. Uh, there's been a lot of uh, discussion about um, uh, why they did this, and someone uh, said, you know, if you wanted to create a whale trap, uh, then the shape of this bay and the movement of the water and so on uh, is exactly that. And uh, they um, uh, regularly over, over the years have been uh, in a situation where um, uh, they become trapped and beached and, and uh, presumably huge numbers have died over a long period of time. One of the heartening things is, of course, that hundreds of um, uh, helpers uh, went down uh, to uh, help uh, these 400 or so pilot whales uh, get refloated. Uh, there was a human chain with volunteers wading neck deep into the water, um, but they stopped, uh, pr uh, uh, were unable to prevent a fresh pod making landfall. Um, uh, someone said, uh, conservation spokesman Herb Christophers, the 240-odd whales that stranded between Puponga and Pakawa Beach late on Saturday have mostly refloated themselves on last night's high tide and they're milling around in the shallow water. 17 of the group, which remained stranded, were refloated by rescuers and volunteers who were working on the split. Uh, the environmental group, which called themselves Project Jonah, what an excellent name that is, uh, which is assisting with the rescue, has a plane flying over the bay to keep track of the whale's movements. And the whale stranding is one of the worst ever in New Zealand. Um, dozens of volunteers have turned up to help since the incident was reported on Thursday. More than 300 of the 400 original arrivals died while medics and members of the public tried to keep survivors alive. Well, one day we'll, we'll um, have somebody on the show uh, to talk about uh, why this happens, but it's certainly um, 
uh, a distressing thing. Moving on to uh, some more uh, creatures now. Uh, this is a, this is also not a this is not a, a entirely happy story at all. Um, the first comprehensive assessment of Europe's crickets and grasshoppers has found that uh, more than a quarter of species are being driven to extinction. According to the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, the IUCN, the insect group is the most threatened of those assessed so far in Europe. Um, Europe harbours more than a 1,000 species of grasshopper and cricket, and if we don't act now... um, uh, researchers are saying, then the sound of crickets could become a thing of the past. I remember I used to go uh, camping down in uh, South Devon, so staying in a tent, I used to love... There were two things I absolutely... Well, more than that, there were lots of things that I really enjoyed about it. Uh, be absolutely beautiful sky at night, getting out of the tent, looking up at the sky, and just seeing stars so bright and so densely populating the sky it was one of the most amazing things it made you think good grief where has this sky been all my life and of course it's always been there it's just that we don't get to see it um uh, of course looking out at the sea um is, is always a, a beautiful and uh, exciting and moving experience but i used to love the grasshoppers and i'd sometimes go out with a big flash uh, light a big torch and um, see if I could uh, see any of these grasshoppers. They were absolutely enormous. And uh, they, uh, these, these giant grasshoppers love to populate the bushes, the hedgerows, uh, down in that part of the world. Um, they're a group, the whole group together, known as uh, Orthoptera, and they live on grassland. They're an important food source for birds and reptiles, so their decline could affect entire ecosystems affecting the birds and the reptiles, because their main food source would disappear. And their habitat is being lost due to wildfires, intensive agriculture, um, uh, tourism development, and so on. Um, So, uh, well, we wish the grasshoppers all the best, and we hope that uh, people uh, working with them will be successful. Uh, The experts apparently particularly concerned about species that occupy small ranges, such as the Crow Plain grasshopper, which only lives on the Crow Plain in the south of France. Some populations are always being lost through wildfires, particularly in Greece and on the Canary Canary Islands. And uh, the result of this IUCN red list, you know, remember a red list is uh, uh, a list of endangered species, like endangered birds and uh, endangered fish and so on. And uh, this is the, the, uh, uh, a red list for uh, these kinds of species. And um, the results of this red list are indeed extremely worrying. So let's hope that all the monitoring and the recommendations that are being made are going to be heeded. This next story is, is most peculiar to me because it's, um, uh, I think it's a new scientist story. Yes, it is. And uh, you'll probably find it in lots of different places. Um, but I just watched uh, the second series uh, of um, Black Mirror, uh, which... Uh, uh, as you'll know, is uh, uh, a series, some of you will know, is a TV series all about um, 
the effects of modern technology and uh, the internet and uh, so on, mobile phones, that kind of thing. That, that's the sort of theme that runs through them. And uh, I watched that, and then I found this story uh, in The New Scientist, and it's headlined this, Robotic Bee Could Help Pollinate Crops as Real Bees Decline. And it was one of those moments where I thought, good grief, I've, I've just seen this um, story about uh, bees going rogue um, and uh, attacking attacking people, being used uh, not for their original purpose. Uh, th- and I'm talking about mechanical bees. These, the, these are um, uh, little tiny drones that, uh, that, that, that behave like bees and um, look like bees and go in, 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 in the science fiction uh, story, go around pollinating crops. So one of the things that we know is that bees are in trouble. And uh, there are people working on uh, bees, which are effectively drone uh, drone bees, bee drones, uh, that go around pollinating uh, plants. Um, about three quarters of global crop species, from apples to almonds, rely on pollination by bees. That's three quarters. That's quite extraordinary, isn't it? And um, pesticides, land clearing, climate change have caused declines in many of these creatures, creating problems for farmers. And, of course, a disease. There's a nasty disease called variola, uh, which has affected uh, uh, many bees. Um, Pollination is needed for reproduction in flowering plants. Male uh, flower plants or stamens produce pollen that fertilizes female parts, uh, known as pistols stills to make seeds and in self-pollinating flowers the stamen sheds pollen directly onto the pistil um cross-pollination however requires the transfer of pollen from one plant to another and this mostly relies on pollen being stuck to the bodies of bees and other insects when they feed on flowers and then being deposited on the very next plant they visit so bees are supposed to be messy you know they're so when they come back from work in the evening they're supposed to be completely covered in yellow stuff because that's their job the little hairs on their legs and their bodies uh, gather the the pollen and they take them to the next plant that they visit a great job really all you have to do is um uh, drink um pollen and uh keep crashing into other plants um and the advantage over self pollination is you think well why you know why design why has nature designed something uh which is uh, a little bit complicated like this well the advantage is that it increases genetic diversity it improves the quality and the quality the quantity and the quality of crops so um in the same way that, uh, you know, we don't marry our brothers and sisters, you know, it's, it's uh, uh, one of those things that in the plant world, uh, try and get as much diversity to uh, um, get to an, uh, uh, pollinate with an individual as different from you are is really good for the gene pool. Um, and it turns out that uh, in Japan... Uh, uh, the National Institute for Advanced Industrial Science and Technology, um, Ejiro Miyako uh, and his colleagues have used the principle of cross-pollination in bees to make a drone that transports pollen between flowers. The manually controlled drone is four centimetres wide. It weighs 15 grams. It's very, very light. The bottom is covered in horsehair coated in a special sticky gel and when the drone flies onto a flower, pollen grains stick lightly to the gel then rub off on the next flower it goes to. And in experiments, the drone was able to cross-pollinate Japanese lilies 
Um, moreover, the soft, flexible animal hairs did not damage the stamens or the pistils when the drone landed on the flowers. So, uh, here is an answer to uh, B decline. Um, uh, Saul Cunningham, who's uh, at the Australian National University in Canberra, says that using drones to pollinate flowers is an intriguing idea, but it might not be economically feasible. If you think about the almond industry, for example, you have orchards that stretch for kilometres, and each individual tree can support 50,000 flowers, he says. So the scale on which you'd have to operate your robotic pollinators is mind-boggling. Actually, in the scary uh, science fiction film, which I recommend, it's series two of um, uh, Black Mirror, uh, and uh, I think it's like the first or the second one of those, um, uh, what happens is that the bees replicate themselves. They build little factories um, to make their own bees. So they they can just keep keep going and keep going. Other commentators say several more financially viable strategies for tackling the bee decline are currently being pursued. Uh, These include better management of bees, well that makes sense, the use of fewer pesticides, breeding crop varieties that can self-pollinate instead of relying on cross-pollination, and the use of machines to spray pollen over Crops. You're listening to Love and Science on BCFM Radio. Now, I'm very uh, delighted to be uh, talking to uh, Dr. Gabrielle Hogan Brun. I hope I am. Anyway, Gabrielle, are you there? Yeah. Ah, excellent. That that's that that's uh, grand. uh, my friends always laugh at me because I'm so delighted when the phone works properly, you see. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm glad that uh, we've, uh, we, we've got you there. You've written a... Um, uh, first of all, we should say who you are. You work in the, um, the, the School of Education at uh, Bristol University. And uh, you've written a, a, a book... Uh, which is all about the connection. It's called Linguinomics, What is the Market Potential of Multilingualism? And uh, it, you've written all about the connection between language and um, economics, and also economics and language. I'm, I'm wondering if you could just sort of... Ve- I, I know there's a whole book to read on this, but could, could you kind of just outline briefly what it, what it is that you... you the main thing that you, you're trying to say in the book? Yeah, so there is a lot of scattered li- literature about these interconnections between economics and language and language and economics. And I wanted to just write something um, in accessible language that, you know, may be of interest to anybody who, who thinks about languages in society. Um, you, you talk about um, how important it, it might be for us to learn different languages. Uh, 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 and, and that it ha- w- w- might have a big impact on society, on organisations and, and, and on other individuals. Can you say what you mean by that? Yeah, um, I think it, it cannot be stressed enough that learning languages and knowing languages can, is, is, is hugely beneficial in personal life but also for economics. Um, I, I can give you an example, for instance. So yeah. in the press recently, we've had the story that Mark Zuckerberg is learning Chinese. We know that the family of his wife uh, is from China, but he has, of course, also another motive. He has a market-driven incentive because he, 
he would obviously be interested if uh, Facebook could uh, penetrate the China China's market. Yes, absolutely. So for him, you know, this is a personal benefit. Of course, it is lovely to be able to share, and the language is in the family. Has a small baby now, but it, it also helps your business if you um, can deal with the language where you're hoping to export. And I think in our days, where um, the where the good points about multiculturalism are being questioned politically, it is important to think about that. Um, uh, of course, there, there are some people who say, well, of course, it, it, it's a good, a, a good thing, for example, that English is so prevalent throughout the world that, you know, it, it's hard to go anywhere and not find people, particularly in business, who don't speak English. Um, it kind of, doesn't that run against your premise a little bit? English is, um, of course, most people will understand sampling English to some extent. But, um, you know, a lot is happening politically now. So with Britain's push for fresh markets outside the European Union, there's no guarantee that English will be, um, will be a, a, a widely used language there. So companies responding to this challenge um, will depend on multilingual and multilingual skills pool um, you know that have no a wide set of languages because it, new markets will be tackled there and um, many English British people I have noticed here are very modest about their language knowledge but of course, with I'm, I'm not sure we're very nod- modest about it. I, th- I think it's that we, we're, we're absolutely rubbish at learning languages in, in Britain. Um, well, they, this is, of course, a thing that can be fostered at school, unfortunately, at the moment. Um, the, there is no foreign language requirement uh, at GCSE, but that it would be good, of course, if that could be... Um, rekindled again it's important to practice the languages because there's there's actually money in languages but there is also a lot of pleasure languages are not just a gdp enhancing mechanism they they also enrich our lives and and cultural understanding but what i wanted to highlight in the book really is that businesses and countries who um, value um, multilingualism um, can you know can generate benefits i can give you an example maybe you can hear that i have a bit of an accent so <laughs> i can say that i'm from switzerland and uh, there are estimates in switzerland that the economic value of multilingualism is about 10 percent of its gdp mm. and this is mainly because many people in businesses are able to easily operate in several languages so they can switch round as needed and it means that deals you know deals are possibly not lost uh, can be uh, um, can be um followed up and uh, profits can be generated because you uh, there is a possibility to engage with other people in other languages so it is very beneficial indeed for businesses but also for countries i think now, I'm at risk of repeating myself, we, we do, um, of course, quite a lot of hard science on, on, on our program. Uh-huh. And, and uh, of course, in the scientific community around the world, the lingua franca is, is actually English. Do you think there are any benefits, say, to the scientific community for people learning 
um, more than one language. Is it the same argument, really, that you're, you're making there? I think in science, English does tend to rule. Most academic papers are written mm. in English. Because it used to, I mean, it used to be German, didn't it? Yeah, it used to be different, certainly German in chemistry and philosophy and things like that. And mm. I actually, I must admit myself, I write all my papers and books in English because I like them to be read as widely as possible. But then outside uh, the scientific community, you know, um, uh, in, in, for companies and in markets, of course, China is now making a big push. And in fact, Chinese is more and more um, a language option offered both at universities and in schools. So, you know, other languages can slowly f foreground themselves as changing markets. Just as was in the past as well, you know, when Arabic made a push in northern Africa and Swahili along the eastern yes. African coast, and languages change according to markets as well. Yes. Uh, and I was just going to ask you, just, just, just to finish, um, if, if you were talking to a young, a, a young person now, as I'm sure you do from time to time, who's, who's, who's thinking, well, you know, whether formally or privately, individually, I learn another language. What, what, is there anything you would recommend that people invest in? I'll, I'll tell you what's be, this is going to be a really long question here. Just, just behind my question, because uh, something like um, Mandarin Chinese, mm -hmm. or worse, Cantonese, is, is notoriously hard for people in the West to learn. It takes them a very long time. Whereas there are other languages which are quite quick to pick up, aren't they? Yes. You're making a very interesting point there. So in Australia recently, there was a push for, uh, for, uh, to offer Asian languages in schools. And in fact, the take-up rate was quite low. And particularly this was so because these languages were felt as alien. There was no sort of interconnection that people felt, although they did, you know, pupils did realize that this could um, be advantageous if they're looking for a job and that they could use these languages because the Asian languages are all around. Um, uh, Australia, I personally would say, um, from a European perspective perhaps, that um, a, a, good, a, a good piece of advice would be to um, learn a global language and the language of your neighbour. And this could, of course, be any type of language. It could be French for your people who live here in England, but it also could also possibly be Polish or Chinese or, or, or Tamil. You know, if you live in a in an area in uh, England where these there are such l uh, language communities in the neighbourhood, this would in fact be very very good for coexistence and mutual understanding. But the EU's uh, policy really is one plus two, so one that's your mother tongue, whatever this may be plus two other languages, usually the recommendation is a neighbouring language and a global language. And I think that probably sounds like a good idea. It certainly does. Dr. Yes. Gabrielle uh, Hogan-Brun, who's author of Linguonomics, What is the Market Potential of Multilingualism, published now by Bloomsbury. Thank you very much indeed for being on the programme. It was a pleasure. Thanks. It's always good to have your company, especially as I'm all on my own today. It's very, very sad uh, with no Andrew, but he'll be here again uh, next week. Uh, so we're looking, as usual, at science in the news and science uh, behind the news. And um, there's new talk. Uh, this is, again, uh, a new scientist story, actually. New talk 
of warming pores. Uh, just another uh, a new talk of warming pores just another faux climate controversy in other words um, are there people out there trying to uh, make up stories about uh, climate change which aren't actually uh, true Um, well uh, there's a story going around that uh, scientists at the US National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration known as NOAA NOAA played fast and loose with data on a well-regarded 2015 paper in Science that definitively showed there was no pause in global warming. Um, but uh, uh, someone called Lamar Smith, Republican chair of the U.S. Congress House Science Committee, and his cronies um, gleefully promoted the story, tweeting up a storm and proclaiming falsified data. The real story is that uh, these Republicans embraced an easily debunked story because it told them precisely what they wanted to hear. Now, uh, you might hear me being uh, a little bit um, heavy on um, climate-denying Republicans, but the main reason for that is because this is a science programme and so we use sort of evidence-based material. And uh, although you'll hear a few uh, opinions and snipes coming about, when we're talking about facts, uh, we... Well, that's what we do. We we use facts and we use um, evidence-based uh, uh, thought and uh, ideas. So uh, one has to be super careful uh, when you hear people uh, gleefully seizing on um, uh, spurious data and uh, people um, putting out um, uh, false uh, statistics when it comes to Um, climate change. What you have to do in science always is look at the big picture, uh, look at um, the vast uh, majority of uh, stories, vast majority of evidence uh, that comes out and and, uh, make a judgment accordingly. Um, Because people really uh, who are against this science uh, like to seize on uh, the very smallest uh, bits of evidence to, uh, to to make a case. So on this programme, we won't be uh, doing that. So forgive us our jibes from time to time, but uh, please stay with us because uh, we're not going to deviate from, uh, from the evidence. Um, Another story uh, that uh, uh, took my interest this week is that uh, apparently um, the secrets of the Earth's birth have been carried in lava jets that uh, spewed out from uh, the inside of of its core. Um, Let me uh, explain this. Apparently, uh, at the time our planet was uh, born, it was about 4.5 billion years ago, um, that uh, magma from that time survived to the present day, occasionally making it to the surface. So basically, just think about a volcano um, and uh, imagine uh, an eruption and uh, uh, magma making its way out uh, of, of, of the hole of the, vol- of the volcano, of the mouth of the volcano. And um, imagine whether or not Uh, Do you think that would contain some information? Well, yes, it does. Uh, uh, According to Matt Jackson at the University of California in Santa Barbara, uh, he says this deep reservoir is a time capsule preserving signatures of the earliest history of the Earth that are not recorded in any other part of the planet that we have access to. 
Um, and his team has now discovered that these rocky relics survive intact for so long and they get lifted up from deep in the mantle by hot plumes and then spewed onto the surface through volcanic eruptions. Um, uh, now, uh, the, the data weighs uh, very, very strongly that these um, bits of rock have a primordial origin uh, uh, from the earliest times. Um, and um, uh, another commentator, Rizzo Hanika from the University of Quebec in Montreal, says, understanding the source of these geochemical signatures in hotspot lavas has a very Im Im important implication for our understanding of the dynamics of the Earth's interior. It could help geologists establish the locations and sizes of the ancient relic reservoirs in the mantle. Having a record of this early history is important to understanding just how our planet formed and evolved in the earliest days of uh, its formation. It always amazes me, astonishes me, how uh, scientists are able to uh, find uh, information from uh, seemingly the most difficult sources. You know, you look at a rock and go, well, what can that tell us? But then, of course, they do the, uh, the dating, look at the radiation emitted by the rock, the type of chemical composition of the rock, and all that kind of thing. And uh, the detective work is absolutely astonishing. Um, and here is uh, another story, uh, which I'll just squeeze in before we have a, another little bit of music. Um, apparently, a black hole and a distant sun are locked in a slow-motion dance of death because scientists have been looking at a galaxy 1.8 billion light-years away and they've discovered a cosmic event that's, that's taken more than a decade a decade uh, when most stars would succumb in a year. So there's a, uh, a star and a black hole having a, a bit of a struggle here, and the star has hung on for 10 years uh, or more. Um, and uh, this is something that, you know, will happen normally really very quickly, maybe in, in less than a year. Um, the University of New Hampshire... Uh, uh, a scientist there called Daching Lin said that black holes sucking in stars has been observed since the 1990s um, at 11 years and counting this is the longest event yet detected. Lin and his team used data from orbiting X-ray telescopes to study the phenomenon and the X-ray flares erupt when a star gets swallowed by a black hole and heated to millions of degrees. Um, we've witnessed a star's spectacular and prolonged demise, Lynn said. The X-rays coming from this black hole surpassed expectations in another way, because for most of the time we've been looking at this object, um, uh, that while we've been looking at this object, it has been growing rapidly. Uh, uh, this tells us something unusual. Like a star twice as heavy as our sun, uh, it's being fed into uh, the black hole. Uh, the event far in the past relative to Earth time should taper off over the next decade. The reason why it's far in the past is it's 1.8 billion light years from Earth. So um, uh, this is something which uh, is now uh, ancient history. Now, remember that horrible Ebola thing? Um, that uh, that dreadful um, outbreak. It's the stuff of uh, uh, scary, nightmare uh, science fiction films, but of course, tragically, it's also real. Uh, and um, diagnosing Ebola earlier is becoming almost as easy 
uh, as taking a home pregnancy test, uh, according uh, to uh, scientists who are developing antibodies for a test that can sniff out the deadly virus more quickly and efficiently than current tests. Uh, researchers reported on February the 6th, so it's very, uh, quite new news anyway, at the American Society of Microbiology uh, Biothreats uh, meeting, uh, depicting, de- detecting Ebola's genetic material in patients' blood samples now takes a full day and requires access to a specialised laboratory. Simpler and speedier tests are available. They use antibodies, specialised proteins that latch onto and flag virus particles. And they work somewhere like a pregnancy test. Within 10 or 12 minutes of dabbing a blood sample uh, onto a piece of paper, a coloured line confirms the presence of, uh, of the virus. But currently... These tests don't give accurate results until the patient has been sick for a while, uh, according to uh, uh, scientists. So, um, antibodies more strongly attracted to the virus could track it down in a blood sample with just a few circulating particles detecting disease before the virus takes over. Uh, Their test uses just two such antibodies, one tagged with gold nanoparticles, tiny, tiny particles that drags the virus particles out of a sample, and the tag bits of virus uh, wick up a piece of paper where they're ensnared by a second antibody that reveals their uh, presence as a coloured line. These antibody pairs need to work well together, grabbing different parts of the virus particle so they don't interfere with each other. And after generating candidate antibodies, as they're called in mice, Demirs and her colleagues tested over a thousand different pairings uh, and they're now fine-tuning the five most effective combinations. So that's really quite uh, an extraordinary uh, story and uh, one which I'm sure uh, we all welcome. Um, And just finally, we've just got time uh, to talk about this. UPS, so UPS drivers... Um, apparently don't turn left and the story um, which is uh, going around uh, it says uh, it's this is IFL science um, why UPS drivers don't turn left and probably you shouldn't uh, either um, it might seem uh, strange but UPS delivery vans don't always take the shortest route between stops uh, the company gives each driver a specific route to follow and that includes a policy that drivers should never turn through oncoming traffic so um, that's left in countries where they drive on the right and, and vice versa or right in the countries where they drive on the left and so on unless absolutely necessary it means that routes are sometimes longer than they have to be so why do they do it well every day Along with thousands of other companies, UPS solves versions of what's called the vehicle routing problem. It's a mathematical problem. Uh, You're given a set of points and the distances between them, and you have to find the best route to travel through all of them. Best is usually defined as the route with the shortest overall distance. Uh, Vehicle routing problems are used to organise many things, from coping with more delivery trucks in cities, hailing taxis, catching chickens on a farm, and all this kind of thing. And the concept was introduced by a chap called George Danzig, in 1959, and 50 years later, uh, despite a large body of scientific research, scientists are still looking for new ways to tackle the problem. Well, what UPS have done is they've moved away from trying to find the shortest route, and now they're looking at other criteria to optimise the journey. And one of their methods is to try and avoid turning through oncoming traffic 
at a junction. Uh, although this might be going in the opposite direction of the final destination, it actually reduces the chance of an accident and it cuts delays because you're not waiting uh, in the gap for the traffic which would also waste fuel. UPS have designed their vehicle routing software to eliminate as many uh, left-hand turns as uh, possible. Uh, And um, in countries with right-hand traffic, that is, and right-hand turns uh, in countries with uh, left-hand traffic. Oh, that's uh, fired up a little bit too quickly. Uh, Just to say, I've got to stop there. Uh, It's been great to have your company uh, this afternoon. Don't forget to join us again next week for another edition of Love and Science. Have yourselves a very good evening. Love and Science.